2: of death and grief. Each week, I talk to a different person about their experiences of grief and death as we remember someone that they have lost along the way. Whether it was a long time ago or you've just joined the club. Welcome to Griefcast.
1: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well,
0: Hey
2: Greasters, I hope you're having an okay week. We're coming up to a very strange time of the year. We're coming up to the Christmas season. Um, that might not be especially important for you or your culture or your religion, uh, but it is a very strange time where our entire country has decided that we have five days to go and see some people if we want to. Anyway, uh, I feel as confused, <laughs> and confused basically about um, pandemic life as I'm sure many of you do and also if you have lost someone this year or you know you're just struggling with it from a grief point of view it's really feeling like it's hard to grieve at the moment like there's not a lot of space for that because there's so much the pandemic takes up so much of our thoughts. So um, just before Christmas we wanted to do a special episode with You know her, you love her. She's a patron saint of the podcast. It is Saint Julia Samuel, everybody. She's been on the show before. She's just the most wisest person I know. And I just wanted to talk to her about more than I had done before, about grief, about grieving, about dealing with it, about coping. And as ever, I was just eternally grateful that she is in our lives and that we get to speak to her I mention her book all the time but she has written a book called Grief Works, and her new book just came out in paper which is called This Too Shall Pass which obviously is perfect reading for a griefster so I hope you enjoy we refer to you all the time on the show jokingly as Saint Julia <laughs> yes.
3: promise you that is so the reverse of the truth and if my children heard they would laugh From here to wherever.
2: I I know. I think it's just nice to have, like, I feel like we all enjoy having, like, um, a group touchstone. So it's like, oh, yeah, well, you know, Julia Samuel says, Julia Samuel. (laughs) It's like, and lots of us have read your first book, Grief Works. And you have another one that's, well, came out this year called This Too Shall Pass, which is not as grief focused as Grief works, but still obviously useful for someone navigating their way through it all.
3: It's about living losses. Right. So it's about Mm. loss, but loss very much like with corona, Mm. that is more invisible. Well, I mean, grief always is invisible, but it's living losses like divorce, or losing your job, or getting old, or being menopausal, or not having the life that you wanted so kind of ex- through every aspect of life how yeah. uh, we have to shed an old version of ourselves to come into the new present version of ourselves.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so obviously still absolutely useful of anyone navigating their way through this process um, because I've definitely learned as well that you can have your grief and then you'll still grieve other things which can then bring up your grief you know your as your your loss of someone who's died and then obviously if you move house or something happens or big changes in your life can still take you back to that place
3: having babies in your case
2: yeah definitely definitely I mean
3: having babies there's a two case studies in my book about people becoming parents one was a woman who came back to work and the other was a, a, a man becoming a father and it's an enormous loss. It's the sort of thing they wanted and they chose and mm. kind of longed for in both cases, actually, um, from lots of difficulty in infertility. And yet having a baby me- means the end to so much of your life mm. um, that you took for granted before. And, of course, gives you great joy and great kind of um, meaning and love and pleasure. But you ha- it's a loss. And it would always, like with you, bring up the fact that your children aren't going to meet their granddad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a, a new experience, I think, whether it's a, a loss experience or a significant event in our lives, will always take us back to significant losses in our lives.
2: Yeah, do you think, I was just wondering, do you think like death has a, uh, yeah, I oh, it's a stupid question, but like, I'm just wondering, like, if if I hadn't, if you know, if you haven't joined the club early or you haven't lost someone, what significant loss do you go back to? Do you think it's something particular of being in the grief club, so to speak, that when something else happens, you're taken back to that grief? Is it like grief is the ultimate loss and it will always trump everything? Or is that me talking as a big (laughs) member of the grief club?
3: Yeah, I think it's a really good question. I mean... I think throughout our lives, whether we've had a significant loss whether someone we really love has died, everybody will have experienced loss. So all of psychotherapy is about loss. Mm. It's about you haven't got the partner you wanted, you didn't have the life you expected to have, you're not the person you wished you were. But the thing about death is its irreversibility and that you can point at it at a day and a time that person Mm. died. Whereas kind of life losses living losses are much more difficult to pin down and they have a big effect on you but they kind of can sneak up on you so you can be 40 I've worked with many people who are 40 who kind of go I slept through my 20s and Mm. mid-30s and now I'm 40 and I haven't got the life that I expected to have and it hits them as an enormous loss but the build-up to it is very different to say the day your father died.
2: Yeah, that's so interesting, isn't it? The death, it's funny to give like a positive for death. Because <laughs> <laughs> normally you're like, well, we, we have it worse. But actually, you're right that it's, um, I've had friends before that have been, you know, down or I suppose almost, on, you know, I can't diagnose them, but in depression and they've said to me oh you know I don't know why I'm depressed it's not like I've gone through something like you've gone through and you can see not like an envy but like it's my journey and my sadness is very clear so like when I was in my 20s I would see some people who were feeling kind of like oh who am I what am I doing and then they would almost feel guilty for those feelings whereas I had a very like oh my sadness is really wrapped in like my dad died so I have a very clear point this is what happened this is the reason for lots of things I can pin it on that as you said that day that moment but I guess when you have that kind of amorphous sadness and you don't quite know why I wonder if that it's not about harder is it but like it's interesting to I I, I don't know what that's like not to have something to be like it's that that I can point at it
3: and I think yeah I think obviously there isn't a hierarchy in these things that no. you can't measure worse or better but I mean like in the era of the pandemic it's ambivalent loss you can't see it. And I think often the friends of yours, you know, they can't legitimize their loss. They yes, can't say to yeah. themselves that what, my feelings are valid. I'm allowed these feelings. And it might be leaving home and they're not ready to leave home yeah. at 25 because they haven't, they're not as mature as some of the people who are older, and, but they feel really sad. Or, you know, there are so many multiple losses that we have through life, that, you know, endings and beginnings. And now in the time of corona, we have this permanent uncertainty. Mm. That I mean, life has always been uncertain, and those of us that have worked in death always know that any one of us can die at any point. So that it's a kind of false belief that we have control and we can plan for our future, because fundamentally, you know, life and death isn't, mm. a, isn't in our gift. I mean, we influence it. But I think now everybody is feeling levels of loss, some much greater than others because they've actually lost their jobs or they can't pay their rent or, you know, they're having, they're very ill or they've had family members die. But other people have this kind of sense of disquiet and uncertainty and sort of greyness that is an ambiguous loss because of the lack of clarity. And I think they too, they can name it as corona but don't really feel legitimate because they can see other people you know their fathers have died or they've lost their job so it's a it's a complex old business Our yeah, it's
2: hard isn't it yeah it's just tricky isn't it humans <laughs> i do feel because i i understand that and i understand that um like legitimizing i think is, it's such a shame that people judge their feelings and obviously i understand i do it as well but like you said that like oh it's not valid or and there's often i hear it so much of like oh well it, it's worse for others could have been worse, you know, so like, which I used to think was a very sort of noble attitude because I used to do that of like, well, my dad died at 15. He could have died when I was two. So I'm lucky, I'm lucky. which well, actually, I've learned through therapy that it's kind of just another way to hit yourself around the head because it's like, well, yes, you could have, it could have been worse, it could have been better. <laughs> and actually what it, all it is, is, is how it is and how you feel about it is okay. But it's so, it's so hard for us to allow ourselves, like you said, whether it's ambiguous loss, um, a living loss or or a death loss to allow ourselves to feel. I think what we just we're so afraid to just be a, just allow feelings.
3: Why is I that, Judith? <laughs> well, I think what what's helpful is in a way is holding both. Yes. So that you hold both sides. You know, because in some ways, when you denied, you know, I was lucky; I wasn't 2 You're swiping the legitimacy or the importance of the death at fifteen. But actually, if you can acknowledge and express the sadness and the shock and the the grief that is lifelong, at different levels of intensity, obviously more intense at the beginning, um, and hold that. And also, seek on the other side of yourself, seek the light, Mm. light. Seek to love again, to engage with life, to work, to have things that are meaningful and have children and move forward. And that you move between the two. I think we have this sort of very simplistic bi-directional um, mm. kind of attitude that, you know, I'm either all sad or all happy. Yeah. And I think we, we need to allow ourselves, you know, like I say in Grief Works and in This Too Shall Pass, you know, agent, pain is the agent of change. Mm. By supporting ourselves to experience and express the pain is how we heal in grief. And at the same time, not knocking that out, we need to choose to do things that support ourselves, that we connect to people that love us, that we do things that distract us. We listen to music, we dance, we give ourselves permission to have fun, even when we're grieving. And that that gives us the resources and the robustness to go back and do that really shitty grief work that no one wants to do and no one wants to feel.
2: Yeah, I've been, I've so I'm writing my book at the moment. So oh, I'm good reading, for you. Thank you. Reading a lot about grief theory and I've become a bit obsessed. I think I was getting there anyway with my, ther- my own therapy, but I've become obsessed with this idea of two things existing at the same time. The dual and, process. And, dual process, yes. Yeah, How do you say it? Ströbe and Schutt? Ströbe and Schutt,
3: I say. and I shoot. mean, they're my favourite
2: theorists of all I, of them. I, oh, I heart a Strobian shirt. <laughs> <Like, laughs> I just met re- I read it recently and I was like <gasps> And That's I it mean, It's complicated but like to boil it down as you said it it is oscillating between between two things of like the grief work and and when when I say Restoration what, Yeah, what I mean is like the days that you're just sobbing and snotting and, and you can't get out of bed and the days where you just watch soap opera and you're scrolling on Instagram. And I speak to so many people who say, Oh, I feel so bad because you know, I, I'm just distracting myself, or I'm just getting on with life, and I'm not really—I haven't really felt sad. I'm—I'm I'm obviously not doing it inverted commas properly, right? right all this mm. stuff, and now I feel so overjoyed that I can say, "You're doing it right!" <laughs> like that's what you're meant to do. You're meant to give yourself a break Brilliant. so that you can go back to those days. But I—I I only found, you know, really looked at this theory properly recently, and I was like. So for someone to sort of put it so clearly of like, no, have a day where you watch Netflix, then have a day where you're crying and obviously you can't schedule it. But,
3: but I think doing it mindfully helps. Mm. So not having that shitty committee where you turn on yourself like I'm not yeah. doing it right, but kind of knowing today is the day I'm really going to cry and I'm going to, call up my friend and she's going to come and sit with me and maybe she'll take me for a walk or whatever that is. Mm. And on the other day, I'm going to do something fun. I'm going to, in the old days, go to a movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, or see friends or or listen to music and dance or Netflix and scroll. But doing it knowing that I'm doing it to give myself a break from the pain. Yes, yes. And the, the movement between the two is what shifts your psychological, the work of it is to face the reality of the loss, to let yourself Mm. know in a way that you can't not know that the person has died. Mm. And the thing that matters most, um, and I think now in the time of corona, and it's very paradoxically difficult because of social distancing, is our relationship with ourselves, that we support ourselves and are compassionate to ourselves, but also the love and connection to other people. So that is the predictor of all outcomes of every aspect of our life, whether it's a living loss or a death, is the importance of relationship, the importance of love. The other thing that I think is really interesting, and maybe this is in kind of current language to gender specific, but what she talked about it, is that women tend to be loss-oriented and yes. men tend to be restoration-oriented. So women tend to emote and feel and go on that Sherlock Holmes mission to find out everything that happened and mm. have the memory box and hold on to touchstones and kind of hold on to their pain. Men tend to be restorative, that they want to have a plan. They want to have hope for the future. They tend to go back to work earlier. If they have a child die they tend to want to have another child sooner and so with couples i kind of tell them about that model and so that he can help her be more restorative and she can help him have an opportunity to express his grief and so that rather than thinking him thinking she's a wet rag that never stops crying and she Mm. thinking he's a tough bastard that doesn't care they kind of understand that that is their kind of physiological wired tendency And the last bit of it is that children very naturally hop between the two. Mm. Children very naturally feel very sad. It's like jumping in a puddle and very naturally jump out of a puddle, kick a ball, play with a friend, eat an ice cream, yelp with laughter. But when they're in the puddle, what we often do as parents is want to protect them from their pain mm. and say, No, 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 don't cry. It's all right. And actually, we just need to be able to let them cry, be sad, comfort them, let them be and do what they do. And they will very naturally hop out of the puddle and be like a happy kid.
2: So interesting, isn't it? I think, yeah, I'd forgotten that bit in this tribute. That, um, yeah, and obviously, as you said, the language perhaps is constrained for what now how we think and talk of gender so that is to be aware or even a heteronormative idea of Mm. relationships but it's equally doesn't stop it being an interesting point of view about how people typically react it's a tendency um that's really interesting isn't it and I also think it's so interesting that what you're saying about the child let them be sad let them be in the puddle but that's also what we don't do to ourselves which is (laughs) why you don't do it to children because you're like I can't do this therefore you shouldn't do this it's actually like you said if you can let a child be sad and I've been I mean obviously I'm like you know parenting a toddler so I'm reading a lot of stuff about this and letting a child just cry without being like it's fine it's all right it's all right and then when you don't do it you realize how much you silence people when they're sad you know like the oh it's okay it's okay I'm here all the talking rather than just silence while someone cries. Like that's that's okay but we're, yeah, we're, yeah. we're so afraid of that aren't we we're so afraid of it and a child expressing that makes us i think very aware of how we don't express our own sadness so when a child is just like i'm sad you're like oh god that's what i don't do why don't i do but that so i
3: think our feelings are transmitted bodily particularly mm. between mother and child or father and child and so seeing the your two-year-old or three-year-old or 15-year-old daughter suffering Mm. as a parent triggers a lot of disturbance in you and it can feel unbearable you know and we're wired to do that aren't we to protect Mm. them in order that they grow and thrive so that we do protect them and so it sends off all those signals in us like help got to make it stop and in a way what you're saying is that we need to do the same I mean as adults we are much more like children Mm -hmm. so that we need to give ourselves permission to be sad and allow ourselves to express it and we need to kind of allow our children to be sad or have the feelings that they have without trying to interrupt them and block them because we find them unbearable to be beside.
2: Yeah and I think that image of them being in a puddle is so nice because it's actually something I suppose it makes me think of like Winnie the Pooh or something but there's like a puddle is It's It's not not, permanent. It's not permanent. Yeah. It's not endless. It's not deep. Like you sit in a puddle, you're really muddy, and then you can get out and wash your mud off your wellies, you know, which I do a lot of at the moment. (laughs) And um, there's something very like, yeah, not, I don't know, odd, I guess, but sweet about that of like, yeah, you sometimes are in a puddle. That's life, isn't it? And it's okay to sort of be there for a bit. And then come out again, but that's what I think is the, for me anyway, was the key to grief is knowing that you can get out, because I think there's so much fear around feelings with grief of like if I get in that puddle, it's going to turn into a well and I'm
3: stuck. It's going to be a hole. I'm never coming out. And I think Martin Seligman, um, who's an American, he's basically a sort of happiness therapist, and I hate the idea of that, but psychologist and he talks about the 3 p's i'm sure in your research you've done the 3 p's oh, personalization oh,
2: yes go on
3: pervasiveness and permanence okay. so that with grief it's personalization it's against me it's about me it's negative to me it's my fault mm. um, i'm bad i deserve this this is my punishment and there are many colors of that that we can make it personal pervasive is that it's going into every area of our lives in a way looking at that restoration um, loss model Mm -hmm. it's like you stay in the loss model you stay in the well you choose to stay in the well you don't give yourself permission to be restorative and permanent like I am never gonna (laughs) get over this and I know that feeling just you know every day that when you wake up in a bad mood or the or it's raining you think it's never going to stop raining And then the Mm. comes. it's like, oh, I didn't expect that. Or (laughs) I didn't expect to laugh at something and feel in a different... I mean, I think that is... You know, as human beings, we have a negative bias to primitively from when we were on the sort of savannah millions of years ago. So we, we look to the negative and we haven't kind of updated our physiognomy or our understanding of ourselves to know that we move and that we oscillate. And we need to... We can take responsibility for lots of things that influence how we do that. Mm. I think one of the complexities, um, and I think this is true for living losses as well as death, is that when somebody dies, particularly in the first months and maybe years, we kind of feel we owe them a duty to suffer. To like mourn I, I for could,
2: them, yeah. I'm
3: imagining you looking at me wherever I believe mm. you to be in my belief system, whether it's in my heart or in heaven, or, and I need to show you and honour the mm. level of the loss. And if I let myself have joy or pleasure or laugh, I'm in some way denying the intensity of how mm. much I feel about you. And again, it's the same permanence, unitary kind of thing... And so I work a lot with people about allowing both again, like giving Mm. themselves permission to really honour the loss and not fast-track it and not get over it and give themselves the space and the time to honour the level of the loss and how that will always be with them. And at the same time, let themselves have pleasure and joy and hope and connection and live the life, live their lives.
2: It's funny, it's so interesting, isn't Because we are such, our brains love binary. Our brains love it so much. And maybe that's like, <laughs> you know, why well, you can look at the success of computers for us. Like, we we love it. We're like, it is raining. It will forever rain. I am sad. This is how I feel. And we, I think especially, I don't know, maybe it's my generation, like obsessed with like, this is who I am. This is who I am. Like, you can look at my Instagram. You can read my tweets. You can see what I'm wearing. And it proves who I am. Whereas actually like, this, which is why I guess when grief comes into your life, you're like, "Oh my God, who am I'm I?" Chaotic. <laughs> I'm chaotic. I'm chaotic. I'm everything. Was as you said, like if you work in the death industry, before Corona, we knew that people just dropped dead, and it's this scary. And it's like holding holding two things seems to be very difficult for humans. Like you can be in grief, you can honor them, you can miss them so much, but you can laugh at a film, you can have friends around and you know i've had people you can have sex you can have sex yes you can
3: be you can have orgasms you can have amazing (laughs) experiences yeah 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 yeah. and it isn't denying it
2: yeah and that guilt we have of oh there's like and it's i think you know it's a bit of a victorian hangover of like there's an appropriate way to mourn someone and it is being sad for at least a year not not walking because i know i've had so many stories or like you know my mum's friends of someone, someone's husband dying or something, and being like, "Oh, someone's over it quick." You know, I saw her out at the shops, and oh, you know, she's got a new boyfriend. Boy yeah. yeah. And when I had um, the wonderful Simon Thomas on, whose wife died very tragically, very quickly, and you know, he spoke about it very eloquently, and it's one of the few episodes I had where, when I tweeted about it, some people were like, "Well, he's with someone already. He's with a new person," and I was like, "Oh my, like." I mean,
3: yeah.
2: Well. well, I mean, unpack the audacity of your opinion on anyone else's life, but um, <laughs> but the, we find it so hard that we, like you said, that you can be grieving and happy. You can be happy and sad, like these things exist together. The sun does come out after the rain, like puddles don't stay there forever. And there's these myriad of examples that tell us constantly this will happen. But when we're in those feelings, it, I know when I'm having a bad time, when I'm in a, the midst of a wave, I, I I've got better, but it's taken years to go, carry out this isn't going to last like this feeling isn't going to last when I'm really in the pit of like oh my god this, everything's awful and it's yeah it's so even though you know you know like you said you have all this life experience this won't last this feeling won't last the fear that it might that this might be the one that stays forever is uh is still it's strong. T- is still, is still strong it's still strong for us yeah
3: and I think one of the things I think about and, and to some extent worry about is that it's an amazing thing that young people millennials and generation z are much more emotionally intelligent and mm. much more emotionally honest and expressive but i think to link to what you're saying like uh, allowing feelings i think there can be um, a pathologizing of feelings like i have anxiety disorder mm. i'm depressed i'm i have you know they can give themselves a dsm 4 diagnosis when actually it's just feelings and that links to your permanence of them so if you give yourself a diagnosis like I have anxiety disorder rather than I've had a few months where I felt really scared and really worried about not getting a job or losing my job and I need to do the physiological things that help me that I Mm. exercise that I eat well that I have fun with friends that I do some kind of breathing thing but giving yourself a diagnosis is very limiting. Mm. It puts you in the box, in that fixed box that this is who I am. And then if I start an Instagram feed of anxiety disorder kid yep. or whatever it is, yeah. then you it's self-fulfilling and you become mm. this person that maybe you were just a bit scared. I'm not denying that there are people who have real yes, diagnosis yeah, yeah, yeah. but I see more and more people giving themselves self-diagnosing mm. and that worries me I think that's so interesting Julia I think it's really
2: interesting I, I under I'm I'm obsessed with like what generations can teach each other because I think whenever something new comes along we're so we're so good at sweeping everything away and I think you're right you know i'm the edge of a millennial so i'm like i just i just scrape in as a millennial apparently I, but I think it's very interesting that um this definition that like you said so this generation are i've never heard so many mental health conversations you know and as someone i do suffer from anxiety it wasn't something that was ever discussed when I was it's a teenager fantastic. I didn't know what it was until I went to therapy and then now I see people talking about it and I feel very like oh great you know it's a thing that I have it's but normalized yeah it's yeah. normalized it's it's really nice to not feel as I used to feel like oh I'm a really just weird crazy person that obsessively yeah. thinks and the weirdo and everyone else is happy yeah. yeah so I think it's like you said it's so wonderful that they have this but you know, the same with grief. Um, There's a lot of grief accounts now on Instagram that there definitely wasn't when Griefcast started. And like you said, there's a lot of, yeah, you know, very specific niche mental health things. And that is not to deny that those people have those things, of course. But I think it's really allowing yourself to grow and change yeah. is really And that's important. what my book's
3: about. Yes. So the whole kind of thesis of this too shall pass is that we are wired to change, Mm. that we do change. But change is an active process and that we have to allow ourselves to go through that process of change and not block it. Because the research is irrefutable. Those that block and deny change have less joy and less success in life. And when change comes around again, it hits them harder. Whereas those that allow the push and pull between the past and the future in all these iterations, like how you feel about yourself, what you're doing in your life, where you are in your life, where you're heading in your life, and that there is a sort of fertile void where you can not know where you're going or who you are, which is the space between a sort of ending and a new beginning. Mm. Those that support themselves to do that and sort of shed their skin thrive. I mean, yeah. it's 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 irrefutably sort of researched on in every kind of level so in a way what you're saying and what I'm thinking about is if you give yourself labels that that fix you then it's very difficult to grow and thrive and adapt mm. through life
2: and I think especially that like, that really makes me think of grief because if you hold and I had this for years if you hold on to your grief at one point in time and you're like you know I think the first time you get your head around your grief is an important moment. The first time you're like, oh, okay, I'm not, I'm not wailing, I'm not, you know, I'm not distracting myself. I'm, I'm kind not of, making a fuss. Yeah, I'm kind of. There it is. There's my grief. I understand now. <laughs> this is who I'm carrying around and that first moment can really stay with you for a long time. And you can think, I've got it. I understand my grief is this, and I did this definitely. And then you don't allow your grief to change. You don't allow yourself to change. Your grief to move with you and to look at it someday goes oh I don't feel like that anymore I don't feel like that about my dad that that particular thing doesn't make me cry anymore
3: and I think release you can release yourself
2: yeah and I think that's such a helpful part of the journey but equally allowing your grief to change it reminds me of what we're saying about feeling guilty of not honoring them that you feel guilty of like oh I don't feel as bad as I did I feel different I feel sad but I don't feel like oh I can't get up and I will cry if I start talking about it I feel like I can talk about it or I can my friends can tell me about their father's day and I'm not like punching the wall and then you feel like oh like is that bad and if you're going to grieve for a long time you know I'm someone who's 20 plus years in the process. You're going to have to let your grief change. But that is hard, isn't it? It's hard to allow yourself that.
3: I mean, I think there's two things. I think one is to acknowledge that you're not blooming in charge of it. Mm. So,
2: (laughs) Amen to that, (laughs)
3: Julie. So with all our technology and 21st century kind of science and brilliance, we are still human beings Mm. that we have to we're not in charge of ourselves when we can't Marie Kondo our feelings into color coded (laughs) drawers of
2: I wish we could one day
3: (laughs) (laughs) I wish we could but maybe we couldn't because then we'd be robots and that isn't where the joy is and the other thing you know I think the word that is most useful about grief and for living losses is is accommodation Mm. is that you know if I could show listeners is that At the beginning when someone dies or you have a huge loss, your husband leaves you, your wife leaves you, it feels like it's all there is. Mm. It it tears a hole in you that you feel that there's nothing else, you're just Mm. a husk, you're just this hole. And then over time, as you go through that process of moving between your loss and being okay and being restorative you adapt and actually that hole may stay the same the same size it will always be big and the shape of the person that's left you or what's happened to you or the person that's died but you build your life around it Mm. so that you build on top of it so that you accommodate it so there may be a time 25 years later where you're thinking about your dad as you see your child go to university or or um do something significant and there'll be a an intensity of it that feels like the day he died mm. i mean for less long but piercing intensity and then other times you won't even think about him he'll be at the back of your mind you'll be getting on you'll be busy you'll be having fun and that again you move in and out of that so but it it doesn't deny the significance or the enormity of what's happened yeah and i think again in our kind of um Technological world, we want to, you know, people talk about closure or ending, or that you um, fix something, and these things that they're not fixing, they are finding a way of living with and learning to live with, and learning to thrive with pain. Mm. So again, this idea of of um, pathologizing feelings is, it's like they're bad, but they're not bad. Mm, they're you know, feelings. feeling sad is not bad. Mm. I mean, we don't like it. I don't actually mind feeling sad. I hate feeling really furious with someone that I want to oh. kill them. Yeah. It's the And it's because you don't know what to do with it because you can't actually kill them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I hate those feelings most because they just go around and round. I know. And I, know. I want to be able to shut them down and reconder them into the sort of oh, depths of, make them go away.
2: Um, but then you do get the joy when that feeling goes Because I, so I, yeah. ha- I hate feeling when I've had a row with someone and you can't, you're both at the point where you can't actually speak yet. You both need to no. calm down. But then when you do, it's like, oh, that feeling's gone. Hooray, hooray, hooray. Yeah. Like, we're okay. <laughs> They're not crossing me. I'm not crossing them. Oh, God. Yeah. Thank God. I like them
3: again. Yeah. And when you feel most angry with the people that you love most. Yes, people I mean, you don't really right. care about, you don't give a shit. No, you're just like, all right. But, you know, when I really hate my husband and think I cannot even <laughs> look at you for one second, that is quite scary. I know, <laughs> you know you're so furious. That would really turn my life upside down
2: 40 <laughs> years later. <laughs> but it's okay to feel that, guys. It's okay if you can't barely look at them for one second. St. Julia even feels that. So it's, it's all right. It's human.
0: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot.
2: Welcome back to Griefcast with Carrie Lloyd, Yeah, God, it's so, it's so interesting, isn't it? It's just this idea, like you said, of... I think the fixable thing, again, is a lesson, a hard lesson I've learned on the way that... It, it's not about fixing it's about like you said accommodating and I think that's you know it's like ball in the box theory isn't it or fried egg theory that I if, you know and there's some really good visualizations online if you google and want to see because I think the visualization that really helps doesn't it when you see the square getting bigger really around the pain yeah. and the first time I saw that I, I was blown away I was like oh yeah that's what grief feels like I see someone's drawn it like oh amazing because it was like yes you the idea that it doesn't go away makes people think oh right so you spend the rest of your life in Miserable. black weeping at a gravesite queen victoria yes yeah. and then you're like no no it doesn't go away but i am happy i have good days but just it's just there and i always um which maybe is unhelpful but i always sort of refer it like to having having children or having family like you don't just stop talking about an aunt or a son because it's been five years like if you brought up someone in your family like oh you know my, my uncle uh, has written a book you'd be like why are you telling me he's been your uncle for 20 years stop talking about him but when we, someone's dead we are like oh you're still talking about it like kind of why <laughs> but it's because they, they were important they mattered and even if you had a difficult relationship with them they were part of who you are so
3: I think we and uh, even even when they die the relationship never dies oh yes So you love them Mm. and you may even hate them in death. I mean, I think you can have a, you can hate your parent for dying and then feel nothing at all because you aren't allowed to feel hate but you can be so furious with them Mm. that kind of fierce love like how could you leave me yeah you know which you're not allowed to feel it's not kind of okay like hating your children you're not allowed to hate your children (laughs) and of course we all hate our children (laughs) (laughs) and boy do they hate us yeah um and
2: that that, yeah like that allowing those difficult feelings that we don't... That society sort of... Somewhere in your head, I don't know where it's you taboo. get taught all this. Yeah, that it's wrong. Where does it happen? Where do we get the message or the memo, like the email that's like, by the way, these feelings are not acceptable?
3: I think a lot of it's movies now. Oh, really? I think... Well, how often do you see a movie that you think is like real life? Yeah, especially you know, when it comes had, to grief. Very rarely. But particularly when it comes to grief, but also love. It's like you fall in love, you smooch, you have unbelievable sex, and then you... Um, live happily ever after mm. having had lots of difficulties on the road and then you find each other mm. and then you're all sorted and that is just the blooming beginning
2: <laughs> You know, <laughs> I talked about this to um Catherine Mannix because she was um, she's great she's amazing and uh, <clears throat> she wrote a wonderful book with the end in mind about, about death and she was talking about as obviously someone who works in palliative care how frustrating hospital dramas are like how the lie that they perpetuate and I brought up to her as a,
3: as a I love hospital dramas oh, by you way. Love having them. worked in a hospital for 25 years I love
2: them <laughs> well she was moaning about not moaning complaining about um, mm. you know when someone dies the way they treat it is very again like oh there's all this trouble they have a moment it's all right they die And I was saying, when I don't have my grief hat on, when I have my writer hat on, often death is used to make it another point. And the same as you're saying with romance, like romance films are designed, like that movie is designed to give you the arc very neatly and tie it up at the end. And if they hadn't lived happily ever after, you'd leave the cinema a bit uncomfortable because the nature of stories is they they must end. And as humans, we really need the end. And... I think that's the trouble is like you said, we get mixed up between satisfying narratives and life. Like a film is not life, a film is a satisfying narrative. If I tell you a joke, you don't want me to just walk off before I finish it, you want the end, but you wouldn't then go, oh, all things should repeat this pattern. But like I said, we like binary, we like pattern. So I think you're right. We see this idea of death in films or love in films and it's appealing because it's like, mm everything was tied up that they they were sad about the death but then they felt better hooray (laughs) and we want that but it
3: educates us then to believe that that's what life should be like yeah is like
2: rather than i think if we all understood narrative more you'd be like they the writers wrote a narrative to make me feel better walking out of a cinema they did not write a narrative to make me feel better about my life (laughs) they wanted that hour and a half. be satisfying like a a meal it's like yeah i've given you the meal i've served it to you here's the pudding here's the coffee well done whereas like if i was like oh here's the you're not having pudding now you're having a bowl of cereal and oh yeah there's no tea you now have to have a boiled egg after you've eaten the spaghetti bolognese you'd be like oh this is awful but that's life guys (laughs) (laughs) I think, that, well. I think that
3: restaurant metaphor is, is perfect. Like You go to a restaurant, you can order it off the menu, get what you want, mm-hmm. it's all served for you, and it's, you know, depending on whether you've gone to a pizzeria or a posh restaurant, you kind of get what you expect. Mm-hmm. But it's finished, and it's sort of, it's a deal. Or a kind of posh restaurant if you're celebrating, and you can order what you want off the men- menu, you know the deal, you pay for it, and hopefully, most of the time, you get what you want. Mm-hmm. And life... I think we sign up. We we know that we need connection. That we know that we need relationships, and we know that they're complicated. We sort of say it, kind of quite often about you know love is tricky, da 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 da. But when it comes to living it, somehow yeah. we think we're failing mm-hmm. when it you're, you know, like the like the pictures of of parenthood. The pictures of parenthood are all pink and fluffy, or blue and fluffy, and and parenthood is amazing and incredibly hard mm. and boring mm. and thrilling and the same as relationships are so all of those things but they're messy and chaotic and they don't have clean lines and beginnings and endings and and they are very sort of crucial to our health I mean we know that those that have sound and um, reliable relationships do much better in life than anybody else mm. they have they're wealthier, they're healthier, their memories are better in old age, they have less pain in old age, they're more successful. And so the predictor of our outcome is our relationships.
2: And that's not just love relationships, right? You mean just like any solid relationship? Connection. Yeah, solid,
3: reliable, good relationships that you feel close to people. Yeah. And we're physically, you know, again, from sort of evolutionary science, we are wired to connect to other people. Mm. And when we don't, you know, loneliness is the, is like smoking for our health. It's as bad for us as smoking a lot, 30 cigarettes a day. So relationships really matter. And it means that we need to navigate or know how to navigate that they're
2: tricky. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I think <laughs> what you said is so true. Like, and when they go wrong, you haven't failed. It's just gone wrong. No. That's what that's what relationships do and the same with it reminds me of i remember i can't remember who i spoke to you about to about illness of like when the body goes wrong that's sometimes what the body does it's not you haven't let the you haven't done this to yourself yeah obviously in other circumstances perhaps you have but you know that's what bodies do they sometimes stop working relationships sometimes stop working that's the randomness and nature of life but we as humans seem to react like oh i I should have been the engineer of this situation. I should have engineered this relationship better. I should have cooked it better. I should have paid more attention to it. And actually, yeah, it's, it's messy and chaotic.
3: and that's. I think that's really true. And also, I think, in relationships as opposed to our health. I mean, both we influence from our behaviours is, again, from films and books, this idea of the one, that mm. we find our soulmate and they make us happy forever after isn't the reality of the research. The research is that for relationships, for for love relationships, that the outcome is those that commit and negotiate and find a way of living together, Mm. that they adapt with each other for each other. And it's not like this perfect, like, looking at you just brings me joy. It's like when you, you know, you work out who takes out the bins. Yeah, yeah. You work out what annoys you about each other. You find a way of living with the stuff that really pisses you off because the good stuff is worth it. So it's not, you know, I think we have this, again, this binary thing about love that it's perfection or nothing or my soulmate or nothing. And so with relationships, it's very much about... um, Working with it. And the the best guy talking about relationships is Gottman. Do you know? Um, no. Oh, yes. He so, talks.
2: Yes, I do know. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: Um, and his research is, you know, he can tell by looking in a couple of minutes of how people are together. Wow. Through the way they kind of look at each other with kindness little contact points mm. where they listen to each other those kinds of things behaviors
2: well I think lockdown was very interesting for that sort of thing and the biggest conversation I had with people who are in a relationship and obviously if you're not it it does you know it, it's not you were in relationship with everybody we all are wherever you were on lockdown and uh the biggest conversation that seemed to be happening was like working out a good cooking and cleaning rotor that made both people happy <laughs> and if you can find that and it wasn't necessarily, and parenting and working yeah and it wasn't necessarily like equal or like this person does it, it was just like things that, that work for you that you're like actually i never want to do that but you're happy to do that and i will do this thing that you never do that's what i've been surprised with <laughs> A marriage is like you're like oh i thought we'd split it down the middle of like, everything you're like no no we had the best conversation we finally admitted that like i'm terrible at stacking the dishwasher but i'm really good at the engineering part mean, of it no no whatever. the dish the, of like putting it on and making sure the salt and the rinse aid and he was like i don't understand how it works i don't understand what this is and i was like will you stack it forever and i will always put it on and he was like yes and i was like <laughs> oh i'm so glad we reached this conclusion rather than both being like oh she's done that wrong again And then, I mean, we should talk about, obviously, lockdown and Corona. And this is such uncertain times that we're living in. I mean, as you said, if you work with death, you've always known we live in uncertain times. But these are particularly uncertain times because all of our key, you know, being able to get the tube, go to the cinema, see friends
3: are suddenly vulnerable and shaky. I mean, and our sense of our immortality. Yes. So most yeah. of us live in blissful ignorance that you know death happens to other people mm. it, it, at some point over there that I'm not going to think about it, can or may happen to me or people I love, and I think corona has forced everybody to look at their mum and dad if they're younger or their mum and dad if they're if they're the older ones to kind of look at their own mortality and face it in a way that no generation has I think since the second world
2: war it I mean we've talked about last time you on we talked about world war Two and how it affected everyone and I've been thinking that a lot that this it, it's yeah obviously it's a different obviously it's different and this is not a war of a physical war of people leaving but it, it that level of grief it is probably the last time that our country had to face this level of grief of everybody being touched by it
3: and the world stopped mm, Yeah, the whole world had a version of it for themselves, yeah. worse and better, depending where you were and what country you 're in um, and that kind of globe the global impact of it that everybody was is affected at, at greater or lesser levels is like a war in a, mm. in a sense um, and I think it is shifting and changing everybody 's relationship about everything
2: mm, about
3: what what matters to me. Yes what's who i care about what work is like what i believe in um about health about your immunity mm. about science um about connection I, th- I don't think there's an aspect of any one of our lives that corona hasn't in some way shaken up yeah it's it's interesting in
2: terms of grief we talked about this on the twitter a lot the griefsters of like when you lose someone pre-corona you want the world to stop. You feel like, how
3: is everyone... You want the clocks to stop. Yeah, yeah,
2: how is everyone going about their jobs and enjoying themselves? And it happened. It felt like, to me, like the world was doing kind of what I'd always imagined it should do when someone died. And it was doing it, and it was horrible. <laughs> because I was like, yeah. it made me realise, for me, obviously it's very personal, when I wanted the world to stop, I wished that people everyone had understood how I felt. And actually it made me realise that when the world doesn't stop when you're grieving, it's really useful because it reminds you of the restorative. It reminds you life goes on. It shows you people having good times. And when you're grieving, you think, oh, fuck you, drinking and going to the cinema and having a nice time. But actually, it's really useful to see the river still flowing. And I think it's so interesting, Corona, we didn't have that. We didn't have, oh, the world's still going on over there. It was gone.
3: I think that's that's really right. And I think, The thing about uncertainty, you know, hope is the alchemy that turns a life around. Mm -hmm. And in a way, what you're talking about, when the clocks don't stop, it gives you hope that you can live again and love again and get back into the flow of life. And with corona, none of us quite know how we will get back into the flow of life. And, And it's hard to have hope, but we need to have hope. Even if it's a glimmer that's miles away, we have to, you know, hope isn't just a feeling, it's a cognitive thought with a kind of plan and a place to aim for. So I think each of us needs to kind of create a spark of hope in our own lives of what that might be for us. Because, and it, it's a bit like when you're talking about loss, orientation, and restoration if you hold on to the not knowing and the bleakness and the tunnel, mm then that's again self-fulfilling. So you need to choose to look for the light and look for hope. Allow yourself to feel the the loss of, of, of not knowing and what this has meant to us. And also take the teachings from it, like learn from it, you know, that we humans have made ourselves the most important Species and trash the planet, but we need the planet, you know, and Corona's taught us something about that watching spring while the world stopped, that the spring oh, it was blew our minds yeah. you know when there was no aeroplanes and no cars, and we could hear the birds and see the the blossom and and then through the summer as well, so that we kind of think breathed in and embodied the seasons in a way that we haven 't before. I think we appreciated supply food chains mm. in a way that we haven't before. We just take for granted, you just press an app and you get your, you know, Sainsbury's Tesco mm. drop-off and now you have to kind of think about it and plan food. And so I think it, I think there's a part of it that we give ourselves the humility as human beings that we aren't the be all and end all, mm. that we have to think about other people and, and connect to other people. We have to think about our relationship with the planet and our environment our neighbourhood, our community, and that speed isn't getting masses done and being your diary kind of ruling your life. Mm. Speed isn't the answer. I mean, one of the things I think a lot of people got from Corona was was recognising that slow is a, a meaningful way of living. Mm. Um, there's a great African um, proverb which says, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Mm-hmm. That's nice. Yeah.
2: Again, it's trying to hold hold two things. Of like, obviously what's happened is terrible and tragic and the, the loss of jobs and, you know, the recession we're hitting. Life, Life, of course. But at the same time... It benefited us all in a very strange way and that none of us could have ever, ever, ever have stayed at home and stopped and breathed in a way that we were forced to. And for some people, that was deeply painful. And for other people, it was wonderful. I know people who were like, yeah. I've had a lovely time. And those two things can exist. And I think, it, I mean, perhaps we should, you know, we say, we always say there's no grief hierarchy. Perhaps there needs to be no corona hierarchy unless like exactly. you literally lost someone and they died. Yeah. Then you can have some hierarchy. <laughs> but like, of being like, it's just a thing that happened and how we've how you feel about it is okay like it's you there were positives in the, and i'm obsessed with this there's positives and negatives to every single thing that happened no, nothing is either all good or all bad and i think you're right the, the slowing down and uh, yeah it's funny i actually interviewed um comedian jess robinson who lost her dad during the the period coronavirus and she was saying that it was amazing she was like obviously she was so sad that her dad died but she had all this time to think, to, to grieve. grieve yeah, and she wasn't rushed, rushed back to work. And I found that really interesting because I was expecting her to say, oh, it was so awful and we couldn't see people. And she was like, it was wonderful. You know, people didn't come round and we just took time. Distracted. And yeah. I do think, yeah, it's... In terms of grief, it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's that thing like of being afraid to feel. If you can, as you said, make a hope for it. I've never thought about it like that, Julia. I really like that, that it's not... Um, it's not just a feeling it's a cognitive thought and therefore you have responsibility to think it (laughs) like to be like and plan yeah and plan like how can I plan some hope because I get very scared of hope as a you know full-on death anxiety then the the gods are gonna come down and and if God God sees you hoping yes they are gonna absolutely
3: knock you out
2: they're like there she is all joyful come on lads let's take this
3: away Yeah, yeah yeah can I say one more Hmm. thing about grief in corona not denying Jess's experience, mm. is that for other people, because they couldn't be with the person when they oh, were dying... Oh, yes, yeah.
2: She was able to be with her dad, so that was
3: very... that. Was and, the, and, yeah. and many people were. Mm. They could let, you know, one family member or two family members, but lots of hospitals and care homes didn't mm. let any visitors at all. Um, and so, you know, the speed of the diagnosis that someone who was perfectly healthy... He may have had diabetes or other and K-morbidities but actually was living a perfectly healthy life working or getting on with their life Um, was suddenly ill and then suddenly became super ill and is ambulanced to hospital Mm. and then You have all the space where you have no contact with the hospital because you couldn't go in. So all that kind of craziness of not knowing, is he in intensive care? Is he coming out of Mm. intensive care, ringing the hospital relentlessly and sometimes getting someone who can give you information, sometimes not. And then if they do die, sometimes seeing that on a screen so that it's through a tablet, an iPad or a phone. And the surrealness of that, not seeing the body not having the proper opportunities mm. to say goodbye, to hold a hand, to love them, to do the things that really make an enormous difference. You know, in in both my books, I talk about, it's the regrets that re-der- derail your grieving process, mm. the things that you didn't do, the opportunities, you didn't have the conversations you didn't have. And then these sometimes Zoom funerals, or certainly only five or 10 people socially distance funerals, so that... There may be thousands of people now, you know, there are normally eight significant people in every death, so I can't do the math, but that's a lot of people. Yeah. Um, a lot of them feel like it's surreal. Mm. Like, I know that he died, or she died, but I I didn't have those... So the reality, facing the reality of the death is how you grieve. Is yeah. how, you need the reality, you need the data of those memories of touch, feel, sight, sound, smell and you don't have those so a lot of them feel that their grief is suspended i and do i really really you're and you're right
2: to talk about it because obviously what happened with jess is, is is still deeply sad but there was like you said all a range of experiences yeah, yeah a range of experiences and i definitely found that some of the hardest bits of lockdown was hearing people on the radio talking about not being able to be there and if you are in the club and you know what it feels like to be there and how hard that is but if someone had said to you you can't come in this room you would have ripped that door down because you were like but to be in a situation when you can't you can't rip a door down because it's dangerous to other people it. it's dangerous to you it's dangerous to your you know other loved ones i my heart broke when i would i was hearing them just say you know i found out oh they couldn't even get the face time or I was face I just thought oh my and I a lot of the tweets were about that of, go, of people who were in the club already just going oh my god like I know how hard this is this and this is what and this is crazy. this is worse and it's funny isn't it because we say there's no grief hierarchy but I really did feel like oh wow this is death in the time of corona like that however tragic your story is if you could be there if you had that option to be there and it wasn't dangerous to you or your other loved families to be with someone. It's just, yeah, I, uh, I, someone described it as just trauma on top of trauma. And it is traumatic. That's There's what no I've question. really stayed with me of like, not yeah. only have you got the grief, as you said, but then it's surreal. and It's traumatic
3: grief. And traumatic is, you know, the way I term traumatic grief is like normal grief with a volume turned up. Oh, gosh. So all the normal feelings yeah. that you have of sadness, fury, mm. Uh, fear, chaos, um, messiness, numbness—all of that is like in fourth gear, mm. um, where and that is really very overwhelming. And I would imagine, and I would encourage people if they can and as much as they can to get therapy, to get mm. trauma therapy, EMDR, Eye Movement Desensitization Reprocessing is the most kind of effective for that because I don't think they can
2: do it on their own no and I yeah there's going to be a lot as you said that's really interesting that eight people in every eight significant people in every death there's going to be a lot of people having to I got it's a shit thing to say I can't imagine but I just can't because I can't get my head around having to grieve someone in this way but also the pandemic's still going on so it's not like you can be like, well, that's done. I it's now, done, it's finished. Close I, that door, yeah, look forward. I now can hug these people and, and have a memorial. I mean, I've had several deaths in this in this time. Not extremely close, but, you know, some more painful than others. And there's been some funerals, some Zoom funerals, and then I'll postpone because we're going to do memorial service. Memorial. And you're like, still waiting for... When? Yeah, for somebody... And sometimes it was just yeah, like my great aunt died who, you know, was very elderly, was in home, but was such like a larger than life figure, we real like East End gal, like just and she had to have this very small funeral and I found that hard so some, somebody who dismal. should have had a really big, large walkers raucous yeah. send off of like this huge family colour and yeah. people and, and I love thought, and God, like wow, you know and it was just a very small thing and it's yeah I mean I I think if you I had a zoom funeral experience which was so strange was so strange
3: and so discombobulated yeah and yet so intense
2: it was and it's funny like we said this this thing about technology so it was um I'll say her name because it was a wonderful wonderful woman who was a palliative care nurse called Kimberly St John who worked at Guy's and St Thomas's, who was doing incredible work in advanced care planning and was just a leading light Amazing. in her field. Yeah, yeah, I've heard of her, yeah. And um, so I couldn't be at the funeral because at that point we, my daughter had corona symptoms. She was fine, but obviously you don't wanna go to a funeral <laughs> and cause more trouble. Yeah. So it was really interesting because I was so glad that Zoom existed, that I could go, that I could yeah. see, that I could hear the stories but not being able to have the ritual of being with them. It felt, it was so strange, the hugs and, and, oh, you know, I watched it in my bedroom and then I had to come out and immediately deal with like an argument because Hey Dougie was being turned off and CB, you know, like it was like, oh, and you suddenly realize the rituals of going to a place, whether it is a religious place or it's just a place and then being with those people and the ritual of coming back to your house I think we've all suddenly really appreciated how important commutes are (laughs)
3: like
2: journeys what they what they do to us to heal some things I found it boundaries
3: Mm. you know that you step out of your bedroom you step out of your role as a parent you step into your role as a friend and a mourner you take the journey to the place you walk into the place you allow yourself to embrace and feel embodied the connection to everybody else who cares about this person and you've never met most of them before, but you all have a common sense of connectedness because yeah. you're there to celebrate their life, to mourn their death. And that that holds you and you cry and you hug and you laugh at the stories and then you step out yeah. and you transition away from the memorial hall or whatever it is, mm. the crematorium, to home. And then you step in. And this lack of transition that we have and the lack of boundaries and how do we hold them in our relationship where you're, you know, like you're a mum, you're a partner, you're a performer, you're a podcaster, you're a writer, (laughs) you're a daughter, you're You're a messed up human being. You're having a breakdown, this
2: is too much.
3: All in the same room, Mm. in the same moment, is kind of crazy making we need our separate spaces the last time you and I did this I came I walked to your studio it was really nice and I thought about that today I thought I could have had a really nice walk had a little coffee on the way Mm. I could have stepped in I could have given you a hug we could have sat down together and it is lovely that we can do this that I can see you I'm not denying that but there's the physical contact is huge Mm. And the transition, the movement between.
2: Yeah, and I, I suppose maybe that's it's worth just acknowledging that, isn't it? That like, I agree. Like, if, if it wasn't for Zoom and the internet, I wouldn't be able to be see a new series right now. So, great. That's amazing. And I've been able to speak yeah. to people in America because suddenly it's like, oh, I can talk to you. It's all available to me. But it doesn't stop. It's not like, oh, let's permanently do this. <laughs> like, we need connections. We need relationships. We need, we yeah, I mean, we need to step out to step back. Yeah, Oh, Julia, I mean, God, thank you so much as ever. So interesting, covering so many topics. And um, the book is out, it came out in lockdown, but it's still available. This too shall pass. Stories of Change, Crisis and Hopeful Beginnings. And if people haven't Quite read... Quite a good
3: title right now, do yeah. you? Yeah, oh my God,
2: yes. <laughs> I feel like I need that tattooed on my uh, my body somewhere. This will pass. And the book, obviously your first book, Grief Works, is, grief Works is still available to buy. If people haven't read that. I'd hugely recommend it if you're beginning your journey of grief. It's, I mean, it's one of our most commonest recommended books on the twitter and instagram and with each other people are always like oh yeah like that's number one like just read that one thank you and then here's some thank others you. but like oh just read the textbook first <laughs> thank you. and then you can uh, then you can read the others um yeah and i think i'll just try and remember what you said of like we have to we have to build some hope in this situation that we're all currently facing
3: choose to build it choose to build it yeah, yeah. i like
2: that i like that. It's our choice yeah oh Julia, thank you so much really appreciate lovely it. seeing you You can follow Julia on Instagram at Julia Samuel MBE. Her book, Grief Work, and This Two Shall Pass, are out now. I cannot recommend them enough. Um, yeah, especially if you are in the club. Grief Works is a. Her introduction to just what grief is was one of the most clearest, insightful paragraphs i've read about it so yeah stamp of approval from griefcast um you can follow us on twitter and instagram at the griefcast the show as ever was edited by kate holland and the music was provided by the glue ensemble artwork by jade perkin i've been carriard lloyd thank you so much for listening and remember you are not alone